in uh, verse 11. One of the things that I've, I've been in conversations with people who will say things like, well, you can't, the Bible's not true. You can't believe the Bible. You, you can't trust it. It's, it's really not true. It's got mistakes and errors and this or that. One of the things that, that I, I will say to people in that conversation is one of the, one of the reasons why that, that I know the Bible is true, and this is, this is not the main reason, but it's kind of supportive evidence, is because the Bible is brutally honest with its characters. I mean, it's brutally honest. God has no problem with laying out the faults and sins of some of the main characters of Scripture. You ever notice that? God has no problem whatsoever of showing great moral failings, failures of, failures of leadership, right? Problems in relationships. He has no problem in laying that out. And I think probably one of the reasons for that is because what God's revealing to us he created everything, and then we see the fall and sinners, and we all are sinners, and we understand how sins affected the whole world. And then, and then from that point on, what we see is this long story of redemption, don't we? To where sinful people are redeemed through the blood of Christ, through the grace of Christ, through faith, repentance, and faith in Him, right? He's, he dies on a cross. He's buried. He's raised the third day. So, so you see this, this, this major story of redemption that's happening. I think this one reason why God's not, not bashful about laying out the sins of His people, major characters. I say that because Peter is one of these. I mean, can you imagine your life for thousands of years being examined and your failures? Now, not just that, oh, you did this and you were wrong in this. But I'm talking about details. Sometimes details about your failings. Can you imagine people have studied it? People have looked at it? Sermons have been preached about it? Songs have been written about it? And I'm talking about some major failures in the Apostle Peter's life. But I suspect that as he's in heaven, I suspect none of that matters to him right now. I suspect none of that matters. Because you know what we just said. Hallelujah, I found him. Peter found him. But Peter found him. And when Peter found him, that was it. And so I don't think Peter's sitting in heaven, you know, going, oh man, you know, I can't believe here goes another sermon about one of my failures. You know? I don't think he, I don't think he could care less because he's with his Savior now. He's with his Savior. But it is interesting, one of the things about Scripture is that God's just so brutally honest about the failings of, of some, some really great people. And so that's what we see here in chapter 2. And again, it involves Peter. Chapter 2, verse 11. This is what Paul writes. He says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, when he came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. He was to be blamed. For before, certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the, the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You're playing the hypocrite here, Peter. How could you do this? And what you're doing is affecting the gospel. It is getting at the truth, the heart of the gospel. That's what's happening. Now, if, I say a big if here, okay? If, not that we do this as believers, but let's just get into fairy tale land for just a second. If we follow the spirit of the age, or, or let me put it this way, if we buy into the new religion of the age, because there is a new religion that's being pushed, and it's being pushed full force. But if we buy into the spirit of this new religion, and let's just say that we buy into the fairy tale that there is no absolute truth. There is no absolute truth. Right and wrong. And if there's no transcendent truth, we've talked about these terms before. So let's just say that we buy into the fairy tale that there's no truth outside of us. The only truth we have is what we make, what we make up. That's the only truth we have. But let's just say that we buy into the fairy tale that there's no right and wrong either. That right and wrong, things like moral, things like ethics, are nothing more than personal preferences. And if I prefer this to be wrong, then it's wrong for me. But it may not be wrong for you because your personal preferences are somewhere else. So let's just say that we buy into that fairy tale, all right? Let's just say that we buy into this new religion and the fairy tale of this new religion that says something like this to me. That salvation, salvation is my sovereign self, my sovereign self being true to my own sovereign self in my actions and the way I live. In other words, how does that come across? You hear it all the time. Be true to yourself. Just be true to yourself. Stop living a lie. Just be true to yourself. Listen, that's the salvation of the new religion. That's it. And it's being pumped. But let's just say that we buy into all that. Then if we buy into that fairy tale, then here's a result. Okay, The result is that what we just read... In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, what we just read will seem ridiculous. We'll look at it and go, that's ridiculous. It'll seem silly. That's silly. It'll seem mean-spirited. We'll cancel Paul. No more Paul. He's mean-spirited. He's harmful. He's harming Peter's self-identity. That's what we would say. He's harming Peter's self-identity. Paul is being so judgmental. This is so judgmental. We don't want anything to do with anything this judgmental. And we'll eventually get to the buzzword of the day. This is so oppressive. Why, Peter's not allowed to be Peter. Paul's just being so oppressive here. And by the way, certain segments of the new religion would say, isn't, isn't, this, uh, isn't this so true of men? You know, this is toxic masculinity on, on display, right? I mean, all these buzzwords that's being thrown around in the new religion. 
So if we do buy into it, then we're going to look at this and think, this is pretty stupid. Why did they come to blows over this? Why did they, why did they have this? But when we reject that fairy tale, when we look at that new religion and we look at that and say, uh uh-uh, there's no way that's true, and we look at the Christian worldview and we look at the gospel and we see the truth of the word of God, then we're not going to see something oppressive, something silly, something harmful. We're not going to see that at all. What we're going to see is a very sad, heartbreaking, but necessary confrontation over the truth of the gospel. This had to happen. It had to take place. And Paul was the one who stood up and said, Uh Uh-uh, Peter. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do this. But it's unnecessary. It's sad. It's heartbreaking. I mean, any any kind of conflict like this is heartbreaking, right? Anytime conflict like this happens, anytime there's confrontation that happens within a church, that's sad. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? But sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's necessary because what's at stake is the truth of the gospel. Sometimes the sad reality is there's so much confrontation and conflict is over stupid stuff. It's over stupid stuff. Paul and Peter are not arguing over the color of the carpet in the church. Neither one of them could care less. But their confrontation is over the truth of the gospel. And I think we learn something in that. I think we see something in that. You see, here they are, three Jewish men. And this is what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on three Jewish men. Now, there are others involved. There are, but we're going to focus on three Jewish men. All three of these men were used by God in the preaching of the gospel. All three of these men were used greatly by God in the establishment of the early church. All three of them were. All three were brought together at one moment in history at a certain particular time in one city, Antioch. And they were all three here together in the providence of God and this confrontation happens. This confrontation happens. All three are involved in this confrontation over the truth of the gospel. You remember Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 18? Remember the great confrontation he has on Mount Carmel? Hey, you go get all the prophets of Baal, round them up and bring them here. You remember what he did? Told them, make the altar, do all this. And then he built the altar, actually repaired the altar of the Lord that had been in disarray. And remember they put the sacrifices on that, the offerings on that, and he tells them go get buckets of water. I think he did it three times, right? I think it was three times. Pour the buckets of water on the sacrifices, fill it up. And then he says, you know, you guys call on, your, on, on, on Baal and you have him light the sacrifice. If he comes down and lights the sacrifice, then Baal's God, right? And so they do. They call out and they call out and they call out and nothing happens. And Elijah mocks them. He mocks them. Oh, perhaps Baal's taking a nap. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's somewhere else dealing with something and he mocks him and then he calls fire down from heaven and it totally consumes the sacrifice that he had prepared water and all. Just totally consumed. You remember that? This great confrontation? 
Who is truly God? And what Elijah shows and what happens is God showing this great display. I am the only true sovereign God. Right? This great confrontation. But then do you remember what happens in the next chapter? 18, confrontation, 19. Guess who he's running from? He's running from Jezebel. He's throwing a pity party, running from Jezebel. I'm the only prophet left, and Jezebel's trying to kill me, and he's running, and, and, and then, you know, finally God deals with him and so forth. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, 18, great confrontation, and then 19, he's running from Jezebel, and we see him, and God says, you know, basically, Elijah, shut up, I have 7,000. 7,000, this remnant that have not bowed a knee to Baal. Elijah, just shut up, I'll deal with this. This confrontation... What we learn from this confrontation, there are a couple of things that we learn that are very obvious. But then there is something that we learn that we need to dig a little deeper. Now as I mentioned, there's three men here. We're going to focus on these three men. There's going to be Peter, then there's going to be Barnabas, and then there's going to be Paul. Okay. Now there are others because Paul says the rest of the Jews went away too. They played the hypocrite as well. But we're going to focus on these three men. Now, this happens, this confrontation happens in this series where Paul is laying out sort of his biographical sketch. Remember how he started this letter. The gospel I preach came from God, didn't come from man. I haven't learned it from man, nothing. It came from God. God called me. God gave me this message. And you remember what he's doing. He's going to great lengths to try to establish the fact that he is an apostle and the gospel he preaches it came from God. And the false teachers were running around saying, he's not an apostle, can't trust him. He doesn't have the true gospel. He's changed the gospel from Jerusalem because the gospel in Jerusalem says, believe in Jesus, but also be circumcised. Law keeping. And then he lays out the biographical sketch and he talks about where he was, when he, what he was doing, and so forth. Sort of distancing himself from Jerusalem apostles, but yet talking about how he went and he met with some of them. You remember he went and met with Peter, and then he saw James, and then he goes and he meets with Peter, James, and John. And he comes away and he says, listen, they didn't add anything to me. We're, we preach the same gospel. They just go to this group and I'm going to that group. This is God's message. So he's been going to great lengths to lay this out because it's an argument that is being used against him by these false teachers. He's not really an apostle. He's changed the gospel. He's changed the message. Jerusalem doesn't want anything to do with him. So when we get to this confrontation, it's the last in this series that he's laying out. What he's going to do right after this confrontation is he's fixing to go to the heart of the letter. He's fixing to get to the issue that's at hand here. So let's take a look at these three men. Here's the first one, Peter. Now, I don't think I have to introduce Peter at this point. This is the Apostle Peter, right? You remember I mentioned his, his failures. His failures are legend. Steps out of a boat. Remember what happens? Steps out of a boat. I'm going to come. He steps out of the boat, starts looking at the sea, starts sinking, right? The denials. Three denials. And then here we are. We're, we're about to see another failing. We're about to see another issue within his life. So let's see what it says. Paul says, but when? Now up to this point, he's been saying then. In chapter uh, verse 18, then, or chapter 1, verse 18, then, uh, verse 21, chapter 1, then, 
Chapter 2, verse 1, then. So, so it's like he's laying out this series of things. Then, then, then. But then the very last one he says, but when? So clearly he's laying out these events. And he says, but when Cephas, this is Peter, okay? But when Cephas came to Antioch, Antioch was the center of Gentile Christianity. Antioch was the center of Gentile Christianity. Antioch was the base of operations for the Gentile missions. So you had Jerusalem, which was the center of Jewish Christianity, where, 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 where they were, where the apostles were. And then you had Antioch who came along, and Antioch became this base of operations for missions to the Gentiles. And this is how we see it play out in the book of Acts. Now, in Acts chapter 11, Paul goes to Jerusalem. He goes and he's collected a fund, he's taken up money, and he is sent with the money by others, and he goes to Jerusalem to give this money, this offering that had been taken, for relief for those in the famine. Then in Acts chapter 13, what we see is Paul and Barnabas are together in Antioch. They're called by God to go preach the gospel, and where they go is to the Galatian area. They go to Galatia. They preach the gospel. We've talked about this in the beginning of this book. Then in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch. And they stay in Antioch for a while. They stay there. Obviously, they're teaching and they're preaching and so forth. So exactly when did Peter visit Antioch? We don't know. The other thing we don't know is why would Peter be in Antioch? We don't know. We don't know. But he is. And evidently, he's been coming to Antioch quite a bit from what Paul says, the way he lays this out. He's been coming to Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Antioch was called Rome of the East. Antioch would have been about 500, about half a million people population at the time. Fabulous city. Fabulous city. In Acts chapter 15, we also know that Paul goes to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. He goes to Jerusalem. What's interesting too is after that, Paul and Barnabas have a falling out over John Mark. And from that point on, Paul and Barnabas are never together again. So does this confrontation happen sometime before they go to Jerusalem in Acts 15? And before this falling out, we just don't know exactly when it happened. We don't know exactly why Peter's in Antioch. But you know what? He is. He's there. And at some point in time, all three of these men were together. Now what happens is this. Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I withstood him. This word is used like when you go into battle and, and, and you're standing your ground in battle and the enemy's coming. They're coming in, in your face and they're making a charge and you stand and you oppose that's how this word was used in classical Greek. And that's sort of the language Paul's using. Man, I stood against him. I opposed Peter. And notice he says, I opposed him to his face. Paul didn't run around behind his back. 
Paul didn't gather some others in the church together and say, hey, you know what Peter's doing? I had a rascal. He says, I opposed him to his face. What Peter was doing was public. This was a public failure. And what Paul does in confronting a public failure is Paul deals with it publicly. Now this is another lesson that we learn when it comes to things like discipline, when it comes to things like church discipline. Peter will, uh, Paul will pick this up when he writes to Timothy. And he'll say something like 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, and he'll say, those that are sinning publicly, rebuke them publicly. Because some have said, well, hang on a second now. Paul should have followed, Paul should have followed the whole thing with Matthew 18. Paul should have gone to Peter privately. And then if Peter wouldn't listen to him, then Paul should have gotten some others and went to him. And then if he wouldn't, then he goes to the church. Now, this is a public sin. This was being done publicly. And Paul says, I stood up, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. He was to be blamed. He was at fault here. Peter was in the wrong here. He was being condemned. He was condemned by God's standards. He was condemned by his own actions. And Paul says, I withstood him, stood up to him face to face. Now, here's what he was doing. Here's the problem in verse 12. What was Peter doing? He says, for before certain men came from James. We have no idea who these men are. We don't know why they would have come. They came from Jerusalem because James would have been in Jerusalem. We don't know. It doesn't seem like James sent these men. It just seems like these are some hardliners who came down from Jerusalem it's, it may be part of the agitators that's given Paul problems. We don't know for sure. We just know that there are certain men, they would come from James. And when they would come, before the certain men would come from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Peter would sit down at the table and eat with the Gentiles. Now, what does he mean by eating? What's happening here? When we read in the book of Acts how when they gathered together, they would break bread, right? This is what would happen in the early church. They would have what they called, some have called love feast. And so they would have a meal together. Now you've got to remember, a lot of times these people were converted, brought in, didn't have homes, didn't have, couldn't go back to places. Uh, and so they would come together, they would have a meal together. And, and, and during that meal or after that meal, they would have the Lord's Supper. Every time they met, this is what they did. They had a meal together, and then they would have the Lord's Supper. So this is what Paul's referring to. So when they're together as a church, see, this is not some personal little petty conflict of personalities going on here. What's happening is Peter is doing something in the church in front of the whole church. They come together for these meals, and before these guys, these jokers came down from James, from Jerusalem, Peter would sit and eat with the Gentiles. He had no problem with eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles. Now, who are the Gentiles? They're non-Jewish, right? Now, if we understand the conflict that's behind the Jewish and Gentile controversy, right? The Jews considered the Gentiles unclean. Unclean. And, and, and the issue here is circumcision. They're the uncircumcised. And, and Jews, if you go all the way back to Leviticus and go all the way back to the food laws in Leviticus, the Jew was not to eat anything unclean. Not to eat anything unclean. And you certainly don't sit and eat with uncircumcised people. But when Christ came, He changed all that, didn't He? He completely changed all that. 
Because now in Christ, He inaugurated the new covenant. And there are some things that Paul will say about the new covenant, which is at the heart of what Peter is violating. So that's the issue. This table fellowship. And behind it, all this was circumcision. It's going to circumcision to come back up again. So certain men would come from James before they would come. He's eating with the Gentiles. He's having a great time eating and carrying on. But then all of a sudden they came. These hardliners from Jerusalem who probably still held some sort of law keeping. If you're going to be Christian, you must keep the law. And if you're going to be Christian, what in the world would you be doing as a Jew eating with these uncircumcised people? And they're hardliners. And so here they come. And what does Peter do? He withdraws. Paul says that he, when they came, he drew back. He separated himself. He drew back. Separating. He was eating. And the language, the tense of the verb seemed to indicate this was something that was a regular practice. So Peter must have been in Antioch quite a few times. Well, then here come these hardliners. Some have said, some of the older writers especially, some of the older church fathers were really, really bothered by this confrontation. In fact, some of them went as far as to say, well, this couldn't, this couldn't have really happened. What must have happened is Peter and Paul got together and cooked up this whole thing to make a point. They're play acting. Well, there's no hint of that at all in this. The reason why some of the early church fathers were so concerned over this confrontation is because of what happens, the light it puts Peter in. Peter was wrong. Peter's playing the hypocrite. Paul calls him out. Some have even gone as far as to say, well, well, well Peter obviously would say something like this. I'm, I'm trying not to offend these hardliners. I mean, after all, Paul will say things. That I'm, I'm going to you know, become all things to all people, right? I mean, he'll talk about not being offensive, and he'll talk about confrontations in such a way, speaking the truth in love. And So some have tried to soften this with Peter by saying, well, obviously Peter's thinking, look, I just don't want to offend these guys from, Jer from Jerusalem. I don't want to cut them off. I don't want to do something to where they wouldn't hear me. You see? The only problem with that is what Paul says here. He said he withdrew and he separated himself fearing the circumcision party. Why would he fear them? I have no idea. Haven't we seen in Acts Peter be bold? The boldness of the apostle Peter. He could care less if he was going to be arrested and threatened with death. He kept preaching the gospel, didn't he? What is it that he's afraid of? We don't know. We're just not told. What is it that he's fearing? He's fearing his reputation. He's fearing losing favor with the other apostles. He's I don't know. I don't have a clue. It just says, all Paul says is that he was fearing these men who came down from James. These hardliners. You don't eat with uncircumcised people. You don't do that. You don't, eat un you don't eat unclean food. You don't eat with uncircumcised people. Timothy George, I think, hits it when Timothy George says, it's not what you eat. What they're eating is not the issue for Paul. Paul could care less. You want to keep a kosher diet? Keep a kosher diet. You don't want to keep a kosher diet? Don't keep a kosher diet. 
Food means nothing. And I think Timothy George hits it <coughs> when he says, it's not what they're eating. It's with whom they're eating. That's what's getting to the gospel. Whether you keep a kosher diet or not, profits you nothing. But when you start to say and act in such a way that one group of people that you really look down your nose at, and you start to act in such a way that, display, that, that sends a signal or a message that their salvation is somehow defective, you're messing with the gospel. You're messing with the gospel. Besides, you remember Jesus in Mark chapter nine, uh, chapter seven, verse nineteen. It's not what defi- it's not what goes in a man that defiles him. It's not what goes in a person that defiles him. Remember what he said. It's not that. It's what what. It's what comes out. Where does what comes out? Where does it come from? It comes from the heart, doesn't it? It's not what you eat, what you put into the body. It's what comes fl- what flows out of the heart. That's what defiles a person. That's what defiles a person. Here's another interesting thing. Acts chapter 10, Peter's the first one to go to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, he goes to Cornelius' house. And if you remember in Acts chapter 10, what happens in that great passage there is God says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. There's all this unclean food. You remember what Peter says? There's no way I'll ever eat that. What are you, nuts? I'm Jewish, I'll never eat that. You remember God calls him on the carpet. You remember what God said to him? What I've cleansed, don't you call unclean. Remember that? And what God's doing is preparing him to send him to this Gentile, Cornelius. And so he goes to Cornelius' household. He preaches the gospel. Cornelius and his household are saved. They're converted. That's Peter. And then what happens in Acts chapter 11, the first part of Acts chapter 11, Peter gets back to Jerusalem and there are those in Jerusalem, Luke says, that calls Peter on the carpet. How dare you go eat with that uncircumcised man and his family? And Peter says, listen, let me just tell you what happened. God said, go. I went, preached the gospel. They were saved. have the same Holy Spirit you and I have. Is that still lingering in Peter's mind? When they called him on the carpet eating with these uncircumcised? I don't know. But I do know this. Here's Peter. Peter is a bold. Peter has shown this great boldness. Yet in this instance, when they would come, he would shrink back for whatever reason. And Paul saw it and Paul said, no, this is not right. This is an issue. This is a denial of the gospel. How is it a denial of the gospel? That's what we need to look at. Because there's only one gospel, there's only one Savior, and when we come to Him, we are all one in Him. So there's Peter. Peter's involvement in this. Then there's Barnabas. You see verse 13? And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas and Paul were close. Acts chapter 9, after Peter, after Paul's conversion, it's Barnabas who who basically introduces him to Jerusalem and says the guy's okay. It's Paul and Barnabas who are together. It's Paul and Barnabas who go to Galatia. It's Paul and Barnabas. And then all of a sudden after Acts 15, when they fall out over John Mark, they're never together again. We never read of them being together again. Although Paul will later say, send Mark, he's useful. So Paul must have had a change of heart about Mark. But he mentions this, you're playing the hypocrite. 
Hypocrisy. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'll just mention this. Hypocrisy is one of the main things that people throw up at you, right? You tell them you go to church. You tell them you're a Christian. One of the first things people will throw up is, I'll never, I can't go to church. Why? It's full of hypocrites. A bunch of hypocrites, right? All of, we've all heard that, right? Ah, Christians, you bunch of Christians. You're just a bunch of hypocrites. Let me give you a short answer to that. This is the way I deal with it. I'll say, yeah, you know, you're probably right. But let me, let me ask you this. Is all hypocrisy sin? Yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah. all hypocrisy is sin. There's no good hypocrisy. Right? You follow me? All hypocrisy is sin. But not all sin is hypocrisy. There's a difference. But what the world wants to do is say, ah, it's all the same. Do I fail? Absolutely. What do I do when I fail and when I sin? I don't play the hypocrite. I go straight to Christ. I repent and turn to Him. That's not hypocrisy. Don't let the world define that as hypocrisy. It's not. Is it true that there are hypocrites? Absolutely. But you know what? I watched, uh, I watched the Alabama-Tennessee game last night. I don't think 100,000 people in, uh, in Tuscaloosa in the stadium. You know how many hypocrites were in that stadium? It didn't stop people from going to that, did it? I've never once heard somebody say, I'm not going to that ball game. Why? That stadium's full of hypocrites. <laughs> right? I'm not going to that concert. Why? There's a bunch of hypocrites at that concert. It's a cop-out. It's a farce. Don't play with it. Don't buy it. Don't let them get away with it. Okay? And don't retreat from it. Just turn it around on them. Well, Barnabas is playing, he's, he's being affected. It's passive voice, so he's being influenced by Peter. He's being influenced by Peter. And, and, and Paul puts it in such a way that even Barnabas gets carried away in this. Can I believe Barnabas got carried away in it? It's almost as if you can hear Paul saying, look at what Peter caused. Now we don't see him blaming Barnabas in a direct way. I don't think he lets Barnabas off the hook, nor the rest of the Jews. But what he's doing is going after the source of all this. Who's the source of it? It's Peter. So that he influenced the rest of the Jews. He influenced Barnabas. Look what Peter calls. Do you know what he's going to say later? In fact, look over chapter 5 of Galatians. This is what he's going to say. We'll get to chapter 5 sooner or later. This is what he'll say when he's talking about in verse 7. You, you were running well who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You see? A little bit's going to affect everything. A little sin's going to affect everything. Play with a little sin in your life. It's going to affect everything. Play with a little bit of it in the church. It's going to eventually affect everything. He's going to say the same, sort of the same thing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. That's why we need to flee sin. That's why we don't need to play with it. We don't need to let it in. We don't need to let it in a little bit because what it does is it begins to affect everything. It begins to affect the way we think, the way we live. 
So even Barnabas gets pulled away. Now, the third person in all this is Paul. The third person in this is Paul, verse 14. But, and there's two things that he says about his involvement. Here's the first one. But when I saw, I saw this. This isn't secondhand information. I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This is the issue for Paul. It's not in step with the truth of the gospel. I could care less what they're eating. I could care less whether they're circumcised or uncircumcised. I could care less about any of that. The only issue is, have they turned from their sins and put their faith and trust in Christ alone? That's it. That's the truth of the gospel. And this conduct of theirs was not in step with that. And so I said, so the first thing, I saw, and then I said to Cephas, I said to Peter, and notice again, he says before them all. He says this in front of the whole group. I don't know how many are there. Don't know. Don't know. I have a clue how many are there. But again, a public sin, a public failing, a public rebuke. I think this is pretty sound principle. Now, if this was something that was private, it would never come to the church first. You see? But this is public. This was public. And so, I saw, then I said, I told him, you're wrong. And I rebuked him before them all. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like, and, uh, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What are you doing, Peter? What in the world are you doing? How is it that you're doing this? You remember James? James will later talk about partiality, but he puts it in the context of rich and poor. Remember how James talks about that? You're in the church and you see, you see a rich person come in and you go, Hey, come on in here, right here, top place. Hey, what would you like to sing today? What do you want to hear today? You know, and there's a poor person who comes in and you just ignore them. Right? James says you're showing partiality. This is not the gospel. This is not gospel conduct. This is not the way you should act. But it's a sad reality. That's what happens in a lot of churches, isn't it? That's not gospel. Well, here, it's over this table fellowship. And, and you guys, you, you are not. Peter, you, how can you do this? You're playing a hypocrite. You're being one way, and then these men from James come, and then you totally act another way, in such a way that you are, you're denying the gospel. I love what Gordon Fee said. Gordon Fee said, when you look at this section, Paul talks about going to Jerusalem. I went to Jerusalem. In this confrontation, Jerusalem came to Paul. Jerusalem came to him. And he stands fast, even opposing the apostle Peter. Even opposing him. So what do we learn from this? You know, that's the question. What do, we, what do we learn from this? Well, there's a couple of obvious things. Peter, if Peter can fall, we can all fall. Right? That's one obvious thing. If Peter could fall like this, we all, we all have this potential. But we all, there's the potential and the possibility to be also forgiven and redeemed from that, right? So that's one, that's one obvious thing that we can learn. 
We also can learn about the influence. Others can influence us. We see Barnabas, right? That's another obvious lesson from this. Another one would be Paul. Look at Paul and you say, man, Paul had great discernment. He was able to discern. This is not right. And he stood up for what's true. So we can learn to be discerning like that. Courage, boldness, all of that. To confront sin. The boldness to do that. Now, we're never told what happened after this. We're never told that Peter comes back and repents. We're never told anything like that. We don't know what happened with this relationship between Paul and Peter after this. If what happens between Paul and Barnabas is after this, this may have played into it. This may have played into it. You know, something else we don't see, we don't see Paul saying, well, you know, Peter has his truth and I have my truth. Peter, bless his heart. It's all, at the end of the day, we're all going to end up in the same place, aren't we? We don't see a response like that at all. We see the boldness of, of, of Paul to confront it. So those are some obvious things that I think we take away from it. But again, the question comes back, how does this get to the gospel? Because what Paul's going to do with this confrontation is this confrontation launches us into the, to the meat of the letter. This is like, this is like an example. This is like uh, uh, an illustration launching us into the meat of the letter. And here's the issue. Paul, Peter's, Peter's actions affect this issue. Salvation. What did God accomplish in salvation? What is it that He accomplished? Well, I know that you can look at it and say, well, personally, I know what He did. He saved my soul, right? Forgave my sins in Christ, right? I have a home in heaven, right? What did He do in the church? What did He, what did he do in establishing the church. What he did was take two groups, opposing groups, and break down a middle wall of separation and bring them together on equal footing, equal standing, same gospel, same spirit, and they are equal. Now to a Jew, this was offensive. Highly offensive. Because in the Jewish mind, they always still would say, okay, yeah, they may believe in Jesus, but they're still from the wrong side of the tracks. Do you see, do you see where that can go today? That's okay, they may believe in Jesus, but, but they need to stay over there. You see where that goes today? Or, or the issue that's going to be unfolded in this letter when it comes to salvation is this. Is salvation Christ plus works. Christ plus, in the issue of Galatia, law keeping and being circumcised. And our issue today, it's not that. It's, we, we don't think in terms of circumcision. Our issues today would be Christ plus being a good person. Christ plus going to church. Christ, Christ plus giving my money. Christ plus quitting bad habits. That's, that's, that's when I'm saved. 
I'm not saved until I, I clean my act up. I'm not saved until I quit a bunch of stuff. I'm not saved until I actually start going to church. We might even could add baptism in there. Or is it Christ alone? It's simply faith and trust in Him alone. This is what is going to get unpacked throughout the rest of this letter. And Peter's, this confrontation with Peter is something that illustrates that. It points to that. That's the issue. This is, this is the deeper lesson. Now, the question will be this. As we go through this letter, we pray, God, give us the discernment to know where we need to stand. Because again, I go back to this new religion. Because the new religion can come at us and infiltrate the church and say to us, yeah, it's okay to believe in Jesus, but you better be standing in the right place on social issues. And you better be standing for social justice. And you better be standing for social this and social that. And if you're not standing in those places, why we really don't know if you're really Christian. You see, it becomes Christ plus to be made right with God. What we need to do is stand with Paul and confront the Peters to say you're playing the hypocrites here, guys. The truth of the gospel is at stake here. And what's sad is that sometimes we don't have the discernment to see it. And we pray, God, give us the discernment to see it. Because at the end of the day, what's at stake? What's at stake is this. What's at stake is your salvation and my salvation. You only have two choices here. That's it. You boil it all down to this when it comes to salvation and being right with God. You can boil every religion in the world down to this. You got the gospel that says, comes to you and says, that you're, you're sinful, you need Christ, Christ died on the cross, was buried, raised the third day, and you turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ alone. You don't try to earn it, you don't try to be good enough for it, you just cry out to Him and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Grace, faith, Christ, alone. Everything else, everything else can be put in this category. It's Christ plus works. Yeah, believe in Christ, but again, you need to do something else to earn your salvation. That's it. Those are your two options. All of us here this morning are on one of those two tracks. We're either crying out, Hallelujah, I found Him. And He satisfied my soul. Or we're crying out, when, when, when's enough, man? When have I done enough? I keep doing and doing and doing and I just can't. He just doesn't seem to satisfy. I just can't find peace and joy. And I keep doing and doing. When is enough? Remember last week I told you, it's the thing that you fear not doing. And if you don't do it, the fear is that if you don't do it, you feel like God's going to kick you out and not love you. 
You're on the works treadmill. Get off. It's going to destroy you. Just turn to Christ. Have mercy on me, a sinner. You know what He'll do?